Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. So last week we said that since the very beginning, God has been sending light into the darkness. And our theme verse for this series has been on this card, and it says, greet the light. And you can, we want you to be able to take this with you. And you'll have verses that you can read each day. If you don't have a regular time of doing devotions with God, you can read this and then you can, um, you know, you can memorize these, meditate on these verses or whatever. And um, as you can see, the, the theme verse is Matthew 4, 16. And it says, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We said that Jesus is the light, and just as God spoke light into the world in Genesis 1, and he said, let there be light, and he spoke light into a a dark and formless and void and empty and and confused um, and broken world. I mean, that's just the earth was like there was nothing to it until the light came in and brought life and order and vitality and beauty and color and all these things. In the same way that God did that physically in Genesis 1, he did it spiritually and is recorded in John 1.1. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so that's what God does. He speaks light into dark places. He sends his word, Jesus, into dark places, into the darkness of the earth. And so when he gets here in John chapter 8, he says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's what he says about himself. But then he also says something else that's pretty extraordinary in Matthew 5. Rather than Jesus saying merely, he says, I am the light of the world, but rather than merely saying that, listen to what he says here. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, wait a second, wait a second. I thought he said he was the light. He says, I am the light, and then he turns around to his followers and says, you are the light. So which is it, right? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, the answer is it's both. And really, it's beyond just merely him saying, I am the light, and if he really almost leans, if it's to be one or the other, it really almost leans towards us because Jesus is no longer physically walking this this earth. He's delegated the responsibility of the light to us. And he even says to his disciples, he says, look, you've seen me do a lot of great stuff. You're going to even do greater stuff than I did. That's crazy when you think about that. And so the idea is, is in the same, with the same power and magnitude and illumination that Jesus came to earth and, and, and lit up everyone around him. And sometimes people don't like the light, you know, but they couldn't deny that it was there. And in that same power, he then hands it off and says, you are the light of the world. And by what you do and by how you live and all of these things, you don't put that light, you know, you don't hide it under a basket. 
You didn't have, you know, light bulbs like we, we do now, but, you know, if you have a lamp, you don't, you don't hide it. You put it out there, and if you have a city on a hill, it's very hard to hide a city on a, on a hill, you know, at night, because even the faintest light you can see. And so I want you to live like that because this world is a dark place. And so as, as you are living and shining my light through you, other people can see. And so I think it's really important. In fact, I would say this as we get started here in this sermon. If you're a Christian, your number one priority while you are alive on this planet is to crush the darkness. And how do you do that? By, by shining the light. You, you eradicate the darkness. It's crushed. And so light yourself up and get after it. Because time is short. And you are where you are because that's where God wants you to be. And your job is to be a light, and it's, it's just so clear. So that's what I want to talk about with you today. I want to ask ourselves, how do we do that? How do I shine it? Because it'd be so easy. You know, a lot, of, a lot of sermons you might hear say, you know, the whole point of today is shine the light. We're going to shine the light, and everyone gets you all riled up like, shine the light. Amen, amen, we're going to shine the light. Yeah, go out and shine the light. I'll give you a little candle, a little blowtorch, whatever, a little illustration, go light something on fire. I'm going to shine the light. And you walk out of here. And you're like, hey, that's right, Pastor, we got to shine the light. And you're like, actually, I don't even know what in the world that means, man. What does that mean to shine the light? How do I do that? It sounded good. So we got to drill down a little bit more and say, what do we mean by that? What does that look like? Otherwise, it's just like, you know, we're just getting ourselves all fired up and everything else. So, so if my light is going to shine, I got to ask myself several questions. If that's really going to happen, I got to ask myself a couple of questions. And the first question I got to ask myself is this, do I love God with all my heart? So at baseline, you know, if my number one job, and Jesus says, look, you, you know, you're a city on a hill, you're a lamp, I, I, my, my grace has illuminated you and you have to shine that light so that people can see that there's light in the world and they can praise your Father in heaven. And how do I do that? Well, I say it's got to start with the question, do you really love God? And you say, well, why would you ask that? And the reason is pretty simple, because if you look at multiple levels, when, when this guy comes to Jesus and asks him, hey, of all the laws in the Old Testament that we know, all the rules and regulations and directives and stuff, which one is the most important? And Jesus is like, ah, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what he says. This is the first and greatest commandment. So if you get that one right, you're not going to have a problem with the rest of them, because that is the essence of it all. The most important thing God wants from us is the, is the thing that will make the greatest difference in our lives. But then it was the same thing when, when, when Jesus, one of his closest friends, his best buddies, a guy named Peter, who was always out on the front lines, he's always impressing people. And he's like the first one out of the boat when he sees Jesus in the lake and he, you know, he walks on water and everything and then he cuts off the guy's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like the hardcore guy. Like, he's a super passionate follower of Jesus, right? But then what happens on the night that Jesus is betrayed and right before he's about to get crucified and all of a sudden this trial is going to happen and, and his best friend, Peter, when asked by this young woman, hey, weren't you with him? He denies him three times. He denies he even knows him. He curses and cusses and spits. Like, I don't know that guy. I have nothing to do with that person. You're mistaking me for somebody else. He denies his best friend in his biggest moment of need. The person he said he would, he would you know, storm the gates of hell with. The person he said he would never leave behind. And three times when he had a chance to change his story, three times he was absolutely certain. That's, he's not my friend. 
I'd never seen that guy in my life. You got me mixed up with somebody else. So you can imagine when Jesus gets crucified, Peter's got a guilty conscience and then, oops, he rises from the dead. Well, this is awkward. <laughs> Nothing count on that happening, right? And so he sees him. And then there's going to be a reconciliation that takes place. And then the question that Jesus asks Peter, I mean, he could ask him all kinds of things, but he asks him three times, equal the amount of times of his denial. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Because that's the core issue. And so the question is a good question. What does it mean to really and truly and deeply love God? Well, let me ask you this. How many Mac people do we have in here? I mean computer, not, not the makeup. I have, I have daughters, I know that. Um, but the, the computer, how many Mac people? Come on, raise your hand. Mac people. All right, all right. Okay, how many PC people do we have? Okay, that's kind of what I thought. Okay, now, those of you guys that are Mac people, are you passionate about Mac, um, Apple products, passionate? Raise your hand if you're passionate about it. Yeah? Okay, you PC people, are you like passionate about PC? Like, yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. I was worried that this wasn't going to work. <laughs> so I'm reading this book by, um, oh, by the way, how many just don't care? How many just like don't really care? All right, that's what I found. Okay. Well, anyway, <clears throat> that's okay. But I'm reading this book by this guy named Simon Sinek, who says it's a book called Start With Why. And in it, he examines why people are loyal to certain products like Apple or Harley Davidson, even though that both of those products in comparison to their competition tend to cost more money. They don't always have as many options or compatibilities as other brands, and they may not even be re as reliable in certain circumstances. Now, don't get offended. That's just what you know, the, the research shows. And so when he's saying, why is it that people will still run after these products with this like, incredible loyalty, right? And so he has this little examination of, of this little lesson of, of how our human brains work. And he says there's this one part of the brain that is called the neocortex. I don't know much about brains, okay? I just know that I have one and that it functions most of the time. But, but as I was reading this, he says there's a couple parts of the brain, right? The one is called the neocortex, and that's the part that is responsible for rational thought and analytics and language. So you communicate what you think about something, what you rationally decide or what you rationally come to a conclusion about, and you can communicate that um, in, in terms of a thought or whatever else by using the neocortex part of your brain. But there is another part of your brain called the limbic brain. And the limbic brain is different. He says the limbic brain is responsible for all our feelings, such as trust and loyalty. It is also responsible for all of human behavior and our decision-making, but it has no capacity for language. It doesn't have the words. So this is why, for example, if you were to ask a, a diehard Harley rider, why do you love Harleys so much? I mean, they break down more, they're more expensive, and from what I understand, even less comfortable to ride because of the engine and whatever else. It's not as comfortable as a ride, especially if you're going for a long distance. So why did you buy one and then, and then go get you know, the, the logo tattooed all the way across your back? Why, did you, why would you do something like that? How does that make any sense? And if you ask them, they might just say, well, you know, it's because it's, it's just, it's, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. I just love them, okay? They're the best. Why? I don't know. They're the best. Go away. I'm going to hurt you. 
And why do they say that? Because you can't convince them otherwise, right? Try, try, try convincing a, darly, a diehard Harley guy that he should go buy a Suzuki. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Because the love of Harleys occupies the limbic system of their brain, which trumps rationality at that point, because that's the part that drives your decisions. It's not the rational part of your brain. It's something deeper that's just as true and just as valid, and that's the reason why we do what we do. And even though you can't articulate why, and you cannot articulate why, because that's the part that you can't really communicate. It's kind of like you say, well, why did you marry your spouse? Well, because they're smart, and they're beautiful, and they're funny, and everything. But that, I mean, everybody says that, right? Because, but, but I just, I just, I just knew. I just knew they were the one. I just knew they were the right one. I, I can't. I, it doesn't make sense, but I just, I, I went for it, you know? And you could, you could criticize them all day long for not having enough rational reasons, but that doesn't change the fact that that's what drove them to do it. That was the decision. It was deep inside. And this is very important because for years on this platform, you know, we, and I guess myself especially, have tried to convince you through evidence that I believe is incontrovertible that God exists and that he loves you and that he wants to engage you and live, give you this amazing life, you know? And so we talk about all of these things that, that make God's existence just totally incontrovertible. I mean, the fact that if you say, how do you have life from non-life? How do you have love from non-love? How do you get there, you know? How do you look around and see all that you have and say, oh, it came from nothing? Show me where that works in any other circumstance. I mean, I can show you a shoe and say, well, this shoe came from nothing. And you go, that's stupid. Somebody made that. But then you look at the whole world and you go, well, no one made that. I mean, so we say these kinds of things over and over and over, right? How is it that we have an understanding of sin and most people are either trying to rid themselves of it or, or, or you know, balance the scales because they have in their mind the idea that they can just do enough good things to outweigh their bad deeds. They can feel better about themselves, or they spend their lives going to college and trying to educate themselves into the idea there's no such thing as sin, so they can assuage their conscience, which many people spend thousands of dollars and lots of time doing. And, but we all have this common idea, no matter where, where you are in culture, what, what, what time, what language, it doesn't matter. Everyone has this understanding of sin in their life and how to get rid of it. I mean, all of our movies and our books and our music deal with the same theme, you know? And so why is it? So all of these are powerful arguments for the existence of God and our need to be released from sin. But here's the thing about all this. And we continue to tell you, here's why it makes sense to believe in God. But here's the problem. None of those things get you to love God more. They don't get you to love God more. And I think that's the problem. We have a lot of people who have a rational view of God. Yes, he exists because his existence makes sense. And these are the kind of people who say, well, you know, there's the man upstairs. I'm a, you know, I always like, I always kind of, kind of bristle when I hear a person say, oh, I'm a God-fearing man. I go, okay, what, I, get, I mean, that's cool, I guess, but a lot of times what I hear underneath that is like, like, you know, I'm, I'm just a good citizen, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person that believes in the existence of God and, you know, I do my duty and everything else. And it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'm, and I'm a Christian because I was raised a Christian and my granddaddy was a Christian and his granddaddy was a Christian and we went to church and whatever. And it's like, well, I'm, an, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. And so, you know, I'm, and it's Christianity is better than Islam and, you know, it's better than being an atheist because those guys are kind of, you know, angry and bitter and weird and whatever. And it's better than being a, you know, in better than Confucianism because I don't even know what that is. So I'm not going to be that. So I'm just a Christian because, you know, it's like the only one that fits right for me. And so Christianity becomes the sensible choice for sensible people who want to raise their family with values in the suburbs. And, you know, kind of like color within the lines and make sure, you know, they say, hey, you know, hey, come on. 
It's good for the kids. Like Christianity is good for the kids. You know, you get them there and they learn, teach them good morals and stuff so they don't go off the deep end. And you hear like people like this all the time. And no offense, but if that's you, you're kind of like the PC person, you know? It's like, well, I bought a PC because, you know, it's, it's good price and it's got good combat- compatibility and, you know, and it's the right choice for our, our family's needs and my job and everything else is just a good, sensible choice. Wow, that's compelling. That's really exciting, right? You made the sensible choice. But that's what it is, right? So, I mean, no offense to you PC people, but I mean, if you like, it's not necessarily because you're like super passionate about it. It just made sense to you. Where if you're an Apple person, like, yeah, I paid more money and it made us not have this and this and this, but I'm changing the world, man. Because Steve Jobs, like, he's a renegade. And like, I'm, I follow him and he's dead, which is really sad, but he was a legend and I want to be identified with that. That's what the Apple people do, right? That's the way that it is a lot of times. But here's the thing, when you look at scripture, God doesn't ask us to make the sensible choice. It's very irrational to follow Christ in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, there's one verse in Isaiah where he says, come let us reason together. And like all of my apologetics friends are like, come let us reason together. And that's true, that's like one. But most of the time, it's a very unreasonable thing to be a follower of Jesus. And to love God is a very unreasonable choice. Because Jesus comes to the earth and he asks this one guy, to sell everything that he has, didn't ask everybody to do it, but ask one guy to sell everything he has and follow him. The guy's like, I ain't doing that, man. That's a very illogical, irrational choice. Thank you, no. Other people, he asks one guy to leave his father and mother and brothers and sisters and walk away from their entire family to follow him. Do you think he's going to do that? That doesn't sound very good. He says, hey, listen, if someone gives you your, if someone asks you for your shirt, give them your jacket as well. Why would I do that? It's like 59 degrees outside right now. It's cold, man. My heater kicked on today for the first time since February. What's up with that? I'm not gonna give you my jacket. Why would I do that? He says, this is a Roman soldier. It was legal to have a guy to make, for them to make you carry your stu- their stuff for one mile because it's heavy, they don't want to do it. So you got to carry, so if the, if the Roman soldier said, hey, carry my stuff for one mile, carry it for them too. What would I do that for, man? I got a, I got a chicken in the oven, you know? I got to pick up the kids from soccer practice. This guy's a jerk. Why would I? That makes no sense at all. Why would I do that? At the end of the day, the rationality just isn't the point. And this is why God is not after people who merely understand him intellectually, but, with, but get into their limbic system, defying language and logic, and when they're just infused with passion, and at some point they just have a loss for words. And so when you have all these irritants around you as you follow Jesus, and they go, well, well why do you believe in God? Because like, what about the dinosaurs, and what about the aliens, and what about like the other things that make you not, but what about all the children suffering in Africa, and what about diseases and everything else? And you still think there's a God and what's wrong with you? And you're sitting there like, oh man, I don't know how to answer this. And I don't know. And finally you're just like, you know, I just know, okay? I just know. And it's not like I'm blind to reason or rationality, but we can sit here and talk for, and I have, man, I have talked for hours upon hours upon hours with people. And it's not that they just, they, they, they haven't been convinced intellectually. It's of course they've been convinced intellectually. They do not want to believe. That's at the end of the day, that's it. And you can always tell because that's when people tend to get agitated. 
And they started to get mad, and then like the ad hominem attacks, well, who are you to say, and you're a jerk, and you're yelling at me, and all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, what's, hap- what's happening here? It's because I, I, I cleared out the rationality, and now we're just talking about a battle for the will, baby, and it's clear you do not want to bow the knee. That's fine. That's your choice. Okay, but what I'm telling you is a lot of us, we feel really intimidated. Well, I don't know. I can't always just get out all the reasons why. And I'm telling you, yeah, that's important, but maybe not as important as you think because not, God's not looking for people who can coldly and calculatingly just sit and tick off the reasons why they chose him. He's looking for people that are just like diehard, revolutionary, passionate followers. And I don't care what you say, man. I just know Now, you may not feel this adrenaline rush of love for God every second of the day, but you've got to get to this place where you know. And so, like, I think about this story of this guy, because you see, it's this kind of passion and not a cold sensibility that was present in a guy named Polycarp, which, I mean, I don't think it means mini fish, but it might, I don't know. Um, but he lived, like, a long time ago, you know, like the zeros and hundreds or whatever. And he was 86 years old, so he's older. And he had been a pastor, kind of first, second generation Christianity. And during a great persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, because that's what they like to do in the Roman Empire, was pick on Christians a lot. They grabbed him and led him into court. They said, look, man, we feel bad. We know you're really old, but you violated a big time law, which is you cannot swear allegiance to Jesus because you're supposed to swear allegiance to the Roman emperor. And if you, if you, all we need you to do is just make the sensible choice. You're old. We don't want to hurt you, but just drop Jesus and swear allegiance to Caesar, whoever, and we're good. But if you don't, there's a stake over there, and we're going to tie you to it, and we're going to burn you. And so Polycarp's famous response and you think about it, man, you're an, you're an older person and you're like, man, is this what I get for all these years of serving Christ, right? Why don't you just make the sensible choice? Just, you don't have to really just say it and then in your heart you can think something else and they'll let you go on your way. And they're all going like, the way the story goes is they all felt really bad. Like the soldiers, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you don't wanna, they don't want to hurt this guy, but they have, they're bound by the law, right? So Polycarp says this, 86 years have I served him and he has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That's a love for God that defies logic. That's not the sensible choice. That's the irrational choice. <laughs> this dude, they took him over to the stake and they're gonna tie him up and they're, he's like, guys, I'm good. You don't need to tie me up. I'm good. And many of the people that stood around and watched him go up in flames were moved in their heart because they saw light that they had never seen before. Because there was a man who said, I love God more than I love my own life. That defies logic. And sometimes defying logic is a really good thing. You can't take a stand like that with pure intellect or pure rationalization or pure sensibility. By the way, I think, you know, some people wonder if they were in the same situation, could they make that same decision? I think that many of you could. 
You don't think that you could because you're so, we're like four or five, eight steps removed from that. But I think if you were put in that situation, a lot of you love God with such a passion. I think you're, you're a lot closer than you think in terms of your um, ability at that moment because the context would be so much different. But there's a lot of us in here who wouldn't. And it doesn't have anything to do with how much, how much you know, God makes sense to you. It has, has love for him infused your soul. And it's, it's, it's got to start there, you know? And, and, and I don't know what to say. It's, it's got to start there because everything else is going to be too laborious for you. That's the difference between religion and relationship, you know? And so, you know, I meet religious people who, you know, they do like the Christmas and Easter thing and they're like, they're dedicated to their religion and it's just so stinking bland and boring and stale. And it's like, ugh. And then they and find out I'm a pastor and they group me in with their religious leaders. And I'm like, please don't because I don't know anything about your traditions, and quite frankly, I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me, because I'm not, that's not who we are, man. We, we're like, we have a beating heart of flesh in us that comes from the God of grace, and you've got to encounter that God of grace. See, this, you have to get to the point where, where you really are, you know, totally um, blown away and, and mortified by your own sin and the magnitude of it, where you got to look at your sin and you just go, Man, I'm a rotten person. I mean, I don't think if you, I really don't think that you can truly understand the grace of God until you come face to face with your own deficiency. And that's why the, the phrase, you know, I'm a good person and I'm basically good, that's just so stinking dangerous because it's like you gotta, that's not helpful at all. You, know, you, can, you can get through your life, you know, and do some morally kind things, but you know who you are at your core. Stop lying to yourself. And in the midst of all that, you see a God of grace who wants to come and trade places with you because he loves you more than you would even love your own children. And when you really come to grips with that and you see, and you see the power of God at work in your life and the things that he's done, and that God became a man, became one of us so he could stand with us and take our place, our punishment, and you're blown away by that reality and you encounter him. And at some point, you're just at a loss for for words, and that's okay. So the question is, do you love me? Because that's the sort of thing that is contagious. People, you know, arguments don't change. That's why it's so worthless on social media to argue with people about God. It's like, that's such a worthless thing. What causes revolutions and changes the world is when, see, when people capture that limbic, that soul, that heart, that yeah, you know? So the passage says, let your light shine before men, they may see your good deeds. Well, how do you do that? Well, if you love God, then it's pretty easy, but the next question then would follow would be, how do my actions make it easy for people to see that I love God? And that's the question. Because Jesus says, look, I want your light to shine like a city on a hill, like a lamp that's been placed upon a big table, you know, a high top table or whatever, so everybody in the whole room can see it. So, um, the question is, how do I make it easy for people to see what's in here? That there really is something happening. And I think that uh, you know, often we believe that if we're going to shine brightly, we have to be living some kind of different life. You know, like, well, maybe if I was, maybe if I didn't have the past that I had, or maybe if I was, you know, more talented or had some special calling, maybe, maybe that I could be someone that could shine brightly. And if I was only holier, you know, 
But the truth is you are where you are. And I really, I want you to hear this. You, wherever you are in life right now, wherever you live, the job that you have, the family that you have, the, 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 the circle that you run in, the hobbies that, that, that you've been you know, led into and whatever else that you're doing in your life, you are where you are because that's where God wants you to be at this particular moment. And the hardest thing in the world, Stephen Pressfield writes about this in his book, The Warrior Ethos, Ethos. He says the hardest thing in the world is to live your own life. In other words, I think the hardest thing in the world is for you to say, just to not try to be somebody else, but to say, I'm a, I'm a unique creation of God in this place. And rather than thinking, well, if I only had this life or only this talent or whatever, if I was only here, then I could be useful for God. And that's the wrong, that's the wrong thinking. The right thinking is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Now, what are the three or four things I need to do to begin shining that light? Because the, the most heroic or difficult or amazing thing you can likely do in your life is not graduate with some degree or make some level of money or whatever else, but to say, what does it look like to show that I love God right where I am now? And when you do that, you begin to crush the darkness that's all around you. And this is something that anybody can do, right? So you might be someone who has been hurt very badly by somebody else. So you've been walked out on or cheated on or lied to or physically abused. And you have every right to go through your life according to the, how the world feels about this. You have every right to go through the rest of your life feeling bitter and angry and vengeful. And you know, people are getting to the point now where they're just kind of proud of that. Like, I'm living my life angry. Okay, you can do that. But as we talked about a few weeks back, when I, when I mentioned the, this the, from the, the great Christian philosopher and teacher, Dallas Willard, when he asked the question, what would it look like for you to live life without anger? And I was like, I heard that question. I was like, whoa. Like, what would I do with all my spare time? <laughs> right? That's a good question. What would it look like for you to live your life without anger? And I'm not just talking about like the daily things that just kill you, like, like the traffic on the freeway or, you know, they get your order wrong at, you know, wherever in the drive-thru or, or like, you know, like music recitals, like the one I was at yesterday that was only supposed to take a half hour and it took two, you know, and you're sitting there and you're like, you know, those little kids playing a violin and you're like, I hate that kid and stop playing, you know, and... My wife's like, you know, um, it's very obvious when you're angry, you make it very obvious to everyone. (laughs) So I'm like, like, I I literally was thinking yesterday, like I was thinking about that question, what does it look like to live without anger at a music recital? It's only supposed to be like, you know, and they get up and they're like, oh, we're running like 20 minutes behind. I'm like, no, you're running an hour and a half behind. She's like, stop talking, you know. So I'm just saying, I got issues, you know. (coughs) Excuse me. But, but, but it's just like, but so there's little frustrations, right, that you're going to deal with in life. And, and so that's one part of it, right? But there's, a, there's another low-grade, macro-lingering anger at the world, at life, at that, at, and usually it's directed at a person that hurt you, and you're not forgiving them because you have the right to be mad, and that's fine. But as long as you do that, first of all, you're not shining any light anywhere because that person is, has got, you know, they, they are directing you like a puppet. And your actions are being run by them. 
They are running your life. They are casting a shadow over your past, present, and future. And the words they said, you live by and you see yourself through. It is idolatry to the greatest degree when you are bitter against someone because you are consumed by them. And so for some of us, the greatest, most heroic activity you could ever do in your life is to release the hold that that person had on you. Otherwise, you will never be able to live a free life. This is why Jesus says these things and he provides the mechanism for it. Because you see, as we've said many times here, you place that in God's hands. Because if that person is not free, if if they don't receive, if they don't get um, repentance in their own life and see what they did to you for what it was, they will be tried for that crime. They will be convicted for that hurt against you and the things that they did to you and the lies and the abuse and the cheating and whatever else. And that will cost them all of eternity. That's God's business, okay? Or if it doesn't, if they actually do find forgiveness, you say, well, that's not fair. God forgave them. Yeah, but it costs Jesus dying on the cross to do it, which means it must have been a pretty severe sin. So either way, someone's going to pay for what was done to you, Okay? Either you, either, either them or Jesus. So for some of us, like the best thing that you can do, well, not, I mean, you know, if you've been hurt, the only thing that you can do, you have to forgive this person. That might be the great, that might be the most difficult thing and, and really like the clutch moment of your whole life. But when you do that, the whole world opens up for you, you know, because then you all of a sudden people go, man, you, like there's a, there's, there's like a, a life to you. There's like a, there's a radiance to you. And after all you've been through, why, how? You see, because it's interesting to people. It's interesting to people because it's divergence from the way the rest of the world goes. And that divergence is nothing more than light. It's light because everything else is darkness. Anger and bitterness, it's fun, but it's dark. It feels good, but it's dark. And you know that. There are other scenarios as well, though. For example, if you're living with a terminal illness and you've been diagnosed and we've had people and have people that are in that spot, what do you do about that? Because God could heal you, but you know, there's a pretty good chance that he won't because not everybody gets healed, right? So what's your job? I don't know how else to say it, but your number one job, if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, your number one job at that point is to die well. In other words, the hardest thing you could ever do in your life, you begin to orient yourself towards heaven because that's where we're all headed anyway. Now for you, it's more of an existential, like right in your face reality, and that's true. But you face that without cynicism. Because just as Polycarp said a little while ago, you know, for 86 years and we're 72 years or 35 years or 52, whatever it is, he's never let you down and he's not about to start now. And as Anselm of Canterbury said of God, I was made to see you and I have not yet done that for which I was made and you're about to. And so you begin to orient your world that way because you were made to see God. And so you face this reality with bravery and peace in the course of fear and sadness and that's the greatest triumph of your life because people will say that and say that's not rational. That's not rational. But it's real. And we have had people in this church who have, who have faced terminal illness and they've done so with great bravery and great peace and great hope. And it has shined untold amounts of light in their circle right where they are. But you have to figure out if this is something that you're gonna do. And it's the only way that you can do it is you have to start with 
If I love God, I love the things of God. I love the plan of God. I love the world that God's created and the path that he's made and the reality of being with him for all of eternity. You might be a high school student who's not sure about your future. And it's hard because you've got no money and no one really expects anything from you and you aren't really taken seriously by society yet. And so, you know, you're just like this kid walking around and you're just, you got all these hormones raging and there's drama everywhere in your life. So what does a person like that do? How do you begin to shine the light? Don't think for a minute that if you're a young person that your light is, is, is just this faint little bulb. No, it can shine very, very brightly. But for you, it's going to be different. For you, you begin to build discipline in your life and you begin to form good habits and become their slave because most adults are slaves to their habits. And they're typically not good ones. And so you leverage the time that you have where no one's demanding an eight to five job out of you and you leverage those spaces that you have to think about and ponder your life and look around at the world and say, you know what, if you had bad parents, you say, okay, listen, I have bad parents so I'm not gonna be those parents to my kids. And you make that decision now, not when you're 45 or 55 and say, well, you know, my parents were bad parents, so I was a bad parent too. You, you, you begin to see these things now when you make these decisions and you put like these big rocks in the jar. This is the time in your life where you put big rocks in the jar and that light begins to kind of build on itself because again, you're, you're, you're aligning yourself with how God created everything in the life he wants you to live. And you begin to take risks and you step out in faith. You get beyond the, the, the little bubble that you live in that's typically so small. And you take courageous steps like going with us to Mexico in, in, in February to go build a house with one mission, which we're going to be doing. It's January, I think. I think I said that wrong. Um, I get that confused with the, the homeless. The homeless thing is in February. I mentioned that last week. It's not in January. Mexico's in January. And you go, and you go out to, to, to Mexico and you help build a house and you get outside your world and you give yourself to the cause and the needs of someone else. And that kind of starts to shape how you think, you know? And it could go on and on and on. And you're a single person. And you might say, well, my life's not really gonna start until I get married. Well, you could get married, but how do you shine the light right now? And all of a sudden, you're not on Tinder and you're not hooking up with people like all the other single people are in your life that you know. And you're living a life of purity and you're living a life of godliness and holiness even in the state that you're in. And you don't think that that's gonna start rapidly setting you apart and, and your, your life is gonna be diverging from everybody else's where they go, whoa, What's going on there? You have a peace and, a, and a, um, a wholeness about you where we're over here wrecking our lives, you know? And then what's gonna see the problem with the light is that some people don't like the light. I know for me, when I go to bed at night, and this is like a long standing little um, debate with my wife and I, because she doesn't mind the little light, the little light in the room. I hate light, right? So I don't like the little smoke alarm light. I don't like the cable light. I'm like, why did it put a big bright blue or whatever the box is. I don't know, we don't care. some light. There's always little lights everywhere from the modem and this and that. And there's a TV or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And there's like, and then some kid turns the hall light on and blasts through the cracks in the doorway and I'm like, oh, I can't stand the light, right? So I'm always trying to hide the light because even if it's the tiniest little light, you can see it if it's really dark. And there's going to be people that don't like the light because they like the darkness. And when they see you, they don't like you. And all of a sudden, well, I'm, you know, I'm like standing out. Well, good, you're supposed to stand out. But it shouldn't be that hard if your love for God is intact. So I read this story about a, about a maid named Sandra Mendez Ortega. I don't know if you heard of this story, but 
She's in the country illegally. She's an illegal alien. I can't say that anymore. She's an illegal person. I don't know. She's not supposed to be here. She's a 19-year-old young gal. She's dropped out of school in sixth grade. She has no education. Pregnant with her second child at 19, unmarried. So it didn't take much to see that she's kind of had a hard life and hasn't made the best decisions so far. She was hired as a maid for this couple to work in their home. And in the process of that, she stole several rings from the, the wife. They were valued at about $5,000. Apparently, according to the story, I think the rings were turned back in, but the crime was still committed, right? So she was arrested and taken to court, and the jury, of course, found her guilty. I mean, she was, what else do you do? She's guilty. And her sentence was that she was ordered to pay $60 in restitution. Now, it's not very much money, but when you're 19 years old and you are in the country illegally and you're pregnant with your second child and you have no education and you can't exactly apply for a maid job again because, you know, your references aren't going to speak very well of you at that point. $60 is kind of a lot of money. It's crushing. The jury realized this. The jury sentenced, the jury convicted her, sentenced her to this. And they knew what they were doing. But they also saw the situation of this person, this young woman. And so at the sentencing, they passed a hat and they took up a collection and they raised $80, 80 bucks for this young woman. And they paid her sentence. And they said, you know, we just, we knew she was guilty and she knew she was guilty, but we just don't want to pile on anymore. We just don't want to pile on. Now, what's supposed to happen, what's supposed to happen, well, I should add too that the people, and I'm not trying to criticize the people, but the people who were stolen from, they were irate, irate at the fact that the jury would do this. The small amount of money and the fact that she walked away owing nothing. They were very, very mad. It's understandable. But the jury looked at this woman and they said, what's she gonna do? Now, if the jury did what the jury is supposed to do, just sentence her and walk out like, you're a waste. <laughs> Thanks for coming to our country, screwing things up, tying up the legal system, stealing from our citizens. Bye. Go back wherever you came from. It would not have made the news. Because that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's what happens. That's the way of the world. But they looked at her and they said, this woman, she's got nothing. We need to step up and pay for her. And it makes the news. Why? Because the news consists of things that don't happen very often. The news consists of things that you go, whoa, that's, that's not from around here. So in the one breath you have justice, and in the other you have mercy. 
Now, what you have to understand is, however you feel about that, and I'm sure if you've got into the story, you might say, maybe she's a rotten person, but I can't tell you what, can I tell you, in that one moment when they gave her that money, in that one moment, the darkness was crushed. Because she, whether she receives it or not, or understands it or not, grace came right into her face, a bright light right into her face that said, you're worth more than what happened to you and what you did. And so, you know, as far as God is concerned, like little Sandra, every single one of us is a Sandra Mendez Ortega. Every single one of us. And like her, we owe a debt we can't pay. We're too poor to pay it. A measly $60. We can't even afford that. Our debt, of course, is much greater. But it's still one easily covered by the God of all creation. And I gotta tell you, you know, until you get there, un until you see it like that, you're just... It's never going to find its way into the limbic system, you know? It's, ne it's never going to be a love beyond words. It's never going to be a passion that can stare down a bunch of guys with lighter fluid and spears and whatever, and a stake. It's never going to be able to get there. And it's never going to shine so brightly that God saw that you were completely beyond help and stepped in for you. That's our message. That's Christmas, guys. You internalize that, and then that light just goes out, and the darkness is crushed. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, um, I just want to give you an opportunity right where you are to, to own this light. And so if you've never received the grace of Jesus, I just want you to, uh, this is creative prayer, but you can just say this to God. Say, God, I just want to introduce myself to you. I'm Sandra. I have a debt I can't pay. That's it. I have a debt I can't pay. And I can sit here and pat myself on the back for all the things I think I've done, but when it comes down to it, I know I need your grace, so I'm asking for it right now. I need that jury to come up with the necessary funds so I can walk free. And I believe the jury is Jesus. Thank you that you love me more than I could ever understand. And you have pity on me, a sinner. Because that's who you are. So I tell you, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I will never be perfect. And I might never be able to understand all that's going on in this moment. But I can tell you, I just no, I just know that I'm saved and I'm forgiven. And that's my testimony. You just tell them that. And the rest of us have been walking with Jesus for a while. Maybe that light's been put under a basket because, you know, you just kind of forgot, you know, and that's okay, but it's, you need to get to the point in your life where that passion has come back and you embrace this kind of understanding, and you're not worried about the people that are trying to get you to list all the reasons why you think the way you do. 
I just know. God, help us to have the courage of a polycarp. Help us to have the faith and the humility of a Peter to come back and say, yes, I love you. Help us to have the vision to see where you've put us now and how we can shine this beautiful light out to the people that we know right now by how we live. May it be easy for people to see our love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.